right, welcome everybody. Good to see you guys this morning. Um, hey, if you need a Bible this morning, we have Bibles uh, that you can use, and you just need to raise your hand, and we'll get one put into your hands. You can use it for today, and if you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one home as our gift to you from the Lord, and most importantly, uh, crack it open, right, and read it and get to know uh, the author uh, of it. So as Pastor Chris shared, oh, so I'm supposed to say the kids are dismissed, so elementary, so preschool through fifth grade, you are going with Monsieur Ed this morning, if there are any little ones here today, and then youth group, so middle and high school youth group, you guys are headed out with Pastor Chris uh, if you'd like to, so um, so as Pastor Chris was sharing, um, lots of fun stuff coming up for the fall. Uh, again, with regroup and life groups, those two Wednesday night midweek opportunities. And then for those small groups, for men and women, um, both the men and the women are going through uh, those studies in the life of David and the kingdom. And uh, lots, so much we can learn from the life of King David. Um, there will be a couple uh, evening groups on Tuesday nights. There will be some morning groups. Uh, I think one for men on Wednesdays, one for women on Thursdays. Um, but all of the details about the exact times and the locations for those uh, you'll find in the e-bulletin, which I know you're all signed up for and you'll get, you look forward to 5.15 every Wednesday. You're like, where's my CCM? I know, you're waiting by your inbox, waiting for that email. So uh, anyway, uh, we're, we're looking forward to those things coming up. I'm ready for fall. I don't know about you guys, but... Um, ready for that. So I, this is usually the point in the service where we announce or we pray out some uh, dear people in our church who are moving away. And I have something fun to announce this morning. I won't uh, actually tell you who they are unless they raise their hands and tell you themselves. But I spent uh, a couple hours on Friday afternoon with a sweet young couple. And here's the neat thing that the Lord told them to move to the Silicon Valley from yeah right so the lord is working here and he's bringing missionaries now to the silicon valley from the east coast so uh if they don't raise their hands and tell you who they are then you'll have to find them after service by asking anyone you don't know are you that couple and that way you'll not only get to know them but you'll get to know uh some other people anyway uh i i will say i'm excited and just refreshed and just super encouraged about the things that uh, that I, I believe we see the Lord doing here uh, in our church and in this area and within uh, the body of Christ. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that this morning. But uh, I'm excited to be together and to be in Mark chapter 10 today. Uh, we are going to almost finish up the chapter, but not quite. But let's uh, pray and just ask that the Lord just continues to really bless uh, our time together uh, as his people today. So, Father, we thank you so much for everything that has already happened here this morning, Lord. We thank you for this place that you have provided and this time that you've set aside for us each and every week, that we can come together as your family, Lord, and sing our praises to you, Lord, offer up our worship to you, Lord, and also not only minister unto you, Lord, but be ministered to by you, Lord. And as we go now to your word, Lord, we ask that that continue. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, Lord, that you would uh, illuminate your word to us today. Speak to our hearts, we pray, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 
Amen. So Mark chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 32 to about 45. And uh, as we know, Jesus at this point is on his final journey to the cross, which at this point is certainly looming large now on the horizon. It's just weeks from the point where we'll be in our text today. And as we followed along with Jesus on this road down to Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, the city where we know that the, the powers of darkness are going to converge uh, to crucify him. But we've watched as he's heading due south for the last time he'd left the Galilee region. He took that little funny jog there around Samaria, ended up in the region of Perea. And that's where we've witnessed the, the last few events of this chapter. Remember, we had that confrontation with the fault-finding Pharisees, followed by Jesus blessing those little children. And then last week, we watched his counsel that he gave to the rich young ruler, and then the lesson that followed that for the disciples, uh, really just about the perils of worldly riches, those things, you know, as such a hindrance to following after him. And it was such an important word, I think, on really how heaven calculates uh, a true kingdom riches. And now this morning, as we continue on now toward Jerusalem, I think we're going to get yet another very important glimpse um, just into how we could say the economy of heaven sees yet another very critical kingdom commodity. And we're going to see this comes along with another very important and yet almost a familiar lesson from Jesus on true kingdom greatness. And so if you'll look with me, we're going to pick up, we're going to begin with the beginning of verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. It says, now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, they're traveling here due south, straight down the Jordan River Valley, headed down towards Jericho, where we're going to see next week, they're going to then turn and head west and go uh, toward Jerusalem. And even though they're journeying down toward the south from the Galilee, right, heading down toward Jerusalem, we refer to them as traveling up. Because Jerusalem itself, though it was down country, it's located up at a much higher elevation, about 2,700 feet above sea level of the Judean plateau. And this is why throughout the Bible, you always hear that people are either coming down from Jerusalem or they're going up to Jerusalem, regardless of where they're really coming from or going to. And throughout the scriptures, of course, this idea of you know, ascending up to Jerusalem, it's not just a reference to the sheer geography. But of course, Jerusalem was the site of the temple of God, and therefore it was a place, you know, of spiritual ascent. The, the psalmist asks, you know, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? And so at this time, as we're approaching the, the spring and the time of the coming Passover, it was, it's estimated that probably about three million people are going to be ascending right along as Jesus is ascending here up to Jerusalem, right? For another year's Passover sacrifice, another year's observing the annual feast. And none of them knowing, of course, that the true Lamb of God was about to be 
slain there in that city. And so, it, again, verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Then it says, and, and, Jesus, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now, there's a lot that we've talked about and we've seen that the disciples didn't yet understand. One thing they did understand, one thing they knew at this point, is that there was hostility in Jerusalem that was waiting there for Jesus and very likely awaiting them as well. And so it's very understandable at this point that they are afraid. But I, I do love that Mark makes note as they walked, look back at the verse, they were also amazed. Now, what was it they were amazed at? Well, I believe that they were amazed at the unwavering resolve of Jesus. Jesus, who we picture here walking like as Mark notes, he's out before them. He's out ahead of them. And we can only try to imagine what an incredible and a really solitary journey this was for Jesus. Right? Isaiah prophetically tells us that, that when the Lord would head toward Jerusalem at this point, it says that he would set his face like a flint toward that city. So there was this determination to do God's will, knowing fully what the cost was going to be. There was a, a loneliness, no doubt, as he was out here by himself ahead of the disciples. But there certainly would also have been a joy of sorts, uh, just a deep settled joy of being right there in the Father's will. And this joyful prospect of the glory that Jesus knew would come as he was about to redeem a bride to himself. Right? Hebrews talks about, you know, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. So this determination and this focus that Jesus has, certainly it's obvious now to his disciples, and I think in a sense it intimidated them, right? Walking along, we can just imagine this is kind of an ominous moment. Intuition was telling the disciples that this trip, this time up to Jerusalem was going to be unlike any trip that they'd ever taken with Jesus to Jerusalem in the past. And then Mark tells us in the rest of that verse, Jesus is sort of going to pause and take a little bit of a pit stop to really prepare his disciples for what was about to happen once they got to the holy city. Look at the rest of verse 32. It says, then he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, so that's that messianic title that Jesus liked to use of himself, the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Because remember, only the Romans could put a man to death. It says in verse 34, Jesus said that they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, you Bible students, you've seen, right? We've watched this sort of strategic progression recorded for us in Mark's gospel account as Jesus continued to warn them about what it was he was about to face, right? And in part, what they then would also face when they finally arrived in Jerusalem. And for those of you who are keeping track, this is now the third time that Jesus had said something similar to these men. Remember, the first one was back in chapter 8, 
then in chapter 9, and now again here in chapter 10. But what we've seen is that each time that he describes what awaits him, right, each time that the crucifixion is getting closer and closer, Jesus starts to describe it for them in more graphically than the last time. And here he describes it very graphically because we're going to see in a very short order, right, for us, just two Sundays from now, right at the beginning of the next chapter, that Jesus will be starting out the final week of his life. At this point, the disciples had heard about his betrayal. They'd heard about his death. They'd heard about his resurrection. But all of these other details, right, these graphic and painful details about him being mocked and scourged and spit upon and, and then killed, all of these details, by the way, were indicative of one very specific means of a torturous death, the most torturous death that anyone could imagine. And all of those details spoke, of course, of the death on a Roman cross, right? Death by crucifixion. So this is this, this dark reality of the cross. And all of these details were new in this account and very, very specific. And again, I think it speaks, it just highlights that, again, like we said, that dedication of Jesus. He knew exactly, even these precise details, about what he was about to endure. Right, The Son of God, God the Son, knew exactly what was waiting for him there in Jerusalem. And still, he determined, he set his face toward the cross. Right? From afar off, we know that he'd seen the pain and the heartache and the cost, and yet he still chose to head towards it and to go right into it. You know, from eternity past, Jesus knew that even the act of creation would ultimately cost him his life in order to save us. Right? That's a heavy thought, isn't it? But again, he saw from afar off in this premeditated way He's more than willing to suffer and to die. And I believe that all of this detail here just punctuates that point. right? But I think the detail also, what it does is it demonstrates very clearly to the disciples and it shows us today, it reminds us the sovereignty of God. It, this reminds us that God was in complete control in that very moment. I don't know how many of you have ever spent much time in reading Psalm 22. But when you read Psalm 22, the details that, uh, inside of it are simply astounding. It was a psalm written by King David many, many years before crucifixion was even invented. Many years before, of course, the time of Jesus himself. And yet that psalm, King David lays out in this striking detail of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David lays out precisely how the Messiah would die when he came. And in the psalm, it speaks of bones being out of joint and pierced hands and feet and garments being divided and lots being cast for his clothing. It speaks about those who would stare and who would ridicule. It speaks of the public scorn and the shame and the reproach. All of these things which were associated specifically with this very public death by crucifixion. And again, all of these things recorded in the scripture prophetically by David of the way that the Messiah would die before crucifixion was even commonly in use. 
Psalm 22, so much so, it's often called the Psalm of the Cross. And it helps us again to be reminded of the fact that God was in control of all of the events that were about to unfold in Jerusalem. When Jesus was betrayed and arrested and beaten and crucified and buried, God was in control of all of it. He had planned these events for his purposes and he was completely in control of them just as he is still completely in control even today of every event in our lives. And these events, I think this is a, a testimony to that both for us and for these disciples because you know, Jesus is giving the disciples all of these details here in advance to bolster their faith, to really try to increase their confidence in him. Because you think about it, and without these with details, the disciples might have become convinced, or let's just say they might have been even more convinced once they were down there in Jerusalem, that God's entire plan had been disrupted. Right? They would have looked there at Jesus on the cross and said, look, he's dying. Maybe God's plans for this wonderful kingdom, maybe they have been completely overturned. But with these details, they could be reminded that God was completely in control. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know of God's sovereignty before all of this coming chaos started to rain down upon him. And he wants us to know that he's in control during our times of chaos as well. And that's something that we should never stop being thankful for. We have to be so thankful in reading a passage like this for a God who's in control, even in those times of chaos. Even in these times of chaos that we seem to be living in right now, he is still reigning supreme. He is still unfolding his kingdom and his plan. And I know as we look around, the world seems increasingly chaotic. But I can also report to you that as much as the, as the powers of darkness have their track, God has his track as well. And he is doing things that are beautiful and he's doing things that are wonderful even in these times of upheaval. If you've been following the news at all, what we're seeing is we're seeing this beautiful hunger for God and we're seeing this searching for God amongst the Gen Z kids, right? Like the, like the 10 to 24 year old kind of, you know, and even some of the younger millennials. Billy Graham said this, he said, it's when we come to the end of ourselves that we come to the beginning of God. And I think that it's in this moment that we are living, thanks in part to all the disruption and the chaos that was created so much by COVID, right? And now all of the questioning of the very basics of human life that's out there, this time of rising depression and of hopelessness, suicidal despair amongst the youth, but it seems like so many in Gen Z are just coming to this point and you see poll after poll and study after study that actually shows that a rising share of these young adults are turning to faith because they're looking for something that's solid. They're looking for answers and they're looking for substance and they're looking for truth. 
right? And I believe that it's in this season of upheaval that we're in culturally. Again, God has this parallel track where he is working and he is seeking and he is saving those who are lost. And really, church, this is an incredible moment in the history of the church that we are in. Because here's the thing we need to also notice, I think, about all of these details that Jesus gave the disciples. Because what we notice is as Jesus talks about what's about to happen to him, we notice again, we've pointed this out before, Jesus never spoke of the cross without also speaking of what? Of the resurrection. Always reminding that there was glory and there was redemption, there was restoration, there was resurrection right on the other side of the chaos of the cross. That God was working something truly beautiful out of that pain and out of that suffering, something that could not be accomplished any other way. And I think that, again, there is something that's very powerful in that reality as it works in our lives. Because so often, if you're anything like me, and I, I suspect that a few of you are, but we can tend to focus more on our cross, right? We're, you know, I'm going through this trial, or I'm dealing with this struggle, or, you know, I'm paying this price. And we're focused on those things, but we forget all too quickly about the reality of the resurrection that God promises from those things. That resurrection that just so often, it's just beyond those things that we can see. There's this beautiful coming resurrection from that current circumstance. And not just ultimately eternally, but even now presently. Right, Because God has this amazing way of delivering us not only from them, but he really delivers us in the midst of them. And it's such a reminder that resurrection always comes after the cross. And I don't want to minimize at all because dealing with disease or death or divorce or bankruptcy or getting fired from your job, all of those things are, are gut-wrenchingly difficult. And yet as Christians, God has given us the ability to look past those things and to really start to see the Lord working in the midst of them and so often even working through them to bring about a resurrection of our circumstances. I want to encourage somebody here this morning, and I don't know who it is, but just to encourage you that God can breathe brand new life. He can breathe resurrection life into the most dead situation in your life this morning. He can do that. And the disciples here, they're astonished, they're amazed, they're afraid because of the coming crucifixion but Jesus was determined and he was at peace and he had joy because he could look past all of these things to the resurrection that he knew was just beyond what they could see. So right here, just on the road, I mean, I just feel like this is an incredible moment. It's an ominous moment, on, on, ominous moment, pardon me. I don't even listen to myself. Nobody else does either, that's okay. Ominous moment. But I think it was also a hopeful moment, right? Both for the Lord and for the disciples. And what we read next is in response now to all of this moment, right? In the wake of this revelation that he's just given them, watch the way two of his closest disciples approach him. They've got kind of a special request of him. It says in verse 35 that then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, parents, does this not sound like a question that we've all been asked, but by five-year-olds, right? This is like a trick question. Verse 36, he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Oh, is that all? Right? You just want the two most powerful places in the entire kingdom. Right? Now, this request makes us chuckle and it kind of makes us shake our heads. And for a couple reasons at these guys. First of all, best case scenario, it sounds more than just a bit ill-timed, doesn't it? This is how James and John respond to this startling announcement that Jesus has just made about his crucifixion, about how he would die this horrible death. Right? It's this ominous, this dark kind of a season, and here they come with what they knew was an outlandish request. Now, how do we know that they knew that this was a big ask? Well, because Matthew tells us in his account that first of all, they pulled Jesus away from the rest of the 12 and they asked him secretly. That is a red flag, right? And second of all, James and John brought in their mother and had her actually approach Jesus and ask on their behalf. Right? Now, her name was Salmone, right? Apparently, she probably traveled along with the followers of Jesus. We suspect from some other scriptures she was probably a sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. But there's even a reason beyond this potential family connection. There was a cultural reason for trying to get mom to do their dirty work. And the reason is that in that Jewish culture, mothers and older women inherently were given this special place of privilege and of respect. And as a result, a Jewish mother could ask for something and have a much greater probability that she was going to get what she asked for than a young man could if he asked for it. So that's the reason they brought their mother in to do this. This is pure manipulation. This is nothing more than a power grab. This is James and John, what, grabbing at greatness. They don't want to earn it. They don't want it to be given to them. They want to manipulate, G you know, say yes before we ask the question, right? They want, to they want to sneak this in on him. And what I think is more than a little bit funny and a little bit ironic, remember James and John, these two had a special nickname, didn't they? It was a special nickname that was given to them by Jesus back in Mark chapter 3. What were they called? The sons of thunder. Remember, they wanted to call down fire on this village in, in Samaria, right? These guys were like the rough and ready. They were like the Harley riders of the 12 disciples, right? And here it's funny to me that when they want something, they have to bring in mom to ask for it because they knew that what they were asking for was just plain wrong. They knew, even they knew, this was selfish ambition. I mean, when you, it's a bad prayer when your mom has to ask it for you, right? 
But Jesus remarkably, watch what he does next. He doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't rebuke these guys for asking for what they asked for. But what he does instead is he helps them understand that they don't understand what it is that they're asking for here. Look at verse 38. It says, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He says, do you know what you're asking? He says, were you not listening at all to what I was just saying? Right, the cup in the kingdom is the cup of death. The baptism in the kingdom is the baptism of suffering. Now, both of these terms, the cup and the baptism, they speak scripturally of times of difficulty throughout the Old Testament. The cup was often a, a kind of an emblem, a symbol of God's wrath. And the baptism that Jesus is talking about here wasn't the baptism that we saw that he received in the Jordan River from his cousin John the Baptist, not at all. The baptism Jesus is talking about here is that deluge of pain and the flood of tragedy that Jesus would endure on the cross. It's a great example of that true meaning of the word baptism, of having the sense of being fully immersed in something, being fully swallowed up in or overcome by something. Right? So the cup and the baptism, this is Jesus speaking of all the things he's about to endure at the hands of the Gentiles and the Jews in his crucifixion and his death. And he says, are you up to that? He says, I've already told you that I'm the king of the kingdom. And I just told you that this is what they're going to do to the king of the kingdom. What do you think they're going to do to the two guys sitting on the right and hand left of the king? They're going to do exactly to you what I just told you they were going to do to me. But James and John, of course, what? They're interested in a crown. Jesus is talking about the cross. He says, are you up to that? Can you handle it? Look at the beginning of verse 39. They said to him, what? We are able. We can do this. Now, let's give these guys the benefit of the doubt. Right? We probably do need to at least appreciate their sense of dedication here. Right? They were willing to follow Jesus into whatever they thought he was heading into. What they may not have understood exactly what this cup and this baptism were that he was talking about. Right? But whatever it was, they were going to follow him. And that does show some dedication, right? some loyalty. But we know that they had no idea what it was that they were agreeing to. Now before we move on, I'll point out what, what some of you are already thinking there are lots of people who have pondered if perhaps James and John might very soon be thinking back to this very moment just weeks from this time as they stood and looked up to the cross right, and saw Jesus as he suffered and died this brutal, torturous death as he was crucified there between two criminals on their own crosses as they too suffered the horrors of crucifixion, right, one on his right hand and the other on his left, truly as he came into his glory. And we do have to wonder if this picture of this reality, the way it may have been burned into their minds and burned into their hearts, maybe as a reminder by the Holy Spirit of exactly what it was that they had just asked for, what we're looking at here. Of course, we don't know for sure, 
but I believe surely it's a possibility. They would understand later, but they didn't know at this point that he was talking about the wrath and the pain of the cross. And so they said, bring it on, Lord, we are able. And look at the rest of verse 39. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. So they said, yes, we're able. And you know what? They were right. By the grace of God, these two men were made to be able. Because if you follow out the lives of James and John, what we discover is that both of them would be baptized into the same suffering that Jesus was. But their cups and their baptisms would be different and they would be unique, right? We know that James would be the very first of the apostles to die. Right? Martyred by King Herod in Acts chapter 12. John would be the last of the apostles to die. And yet we know that he suffered to an incredible degree throughout the duration of his life. We know that he spent the final days of his life in exile on the island of Patmos, right, where he received the revelation. But he was there as a prisoner persecuted for the sake of the gospel. We're told that the Roman emperor had attempted to put him to death. Church tradition tells us that the emperor tried to put him to death by putting him into a vat of boiling oil. You talk about a baptism, right? But he survived that and he lived on to die a natural death. But again, only after he went through quite a baptism of suffering for the rest of his life. And I think that as we think about these two men, right, the lives of James and John and everything that they went through uniquely, this price that they paid for the sake of the gospel, I think it's encouraging in a sense because I think it reminds us that the things that each one of us might be called to endure for Jesus are just as unique as that individual calling that we have from Jesus and that he sees us and he knows us in that suffering, right? He knows our cup and he knows our baptism and he knows it well in advance of us having to endure it. And I know that even here this morning, there are, there are some of you who are enduring the suffering of loss. Some are enduring the suffering of being misunderstood. There are people here enduring financial suffering. Some are suffering from health issues, other from the consequences of a wrecked reputation, right? There's people here I know suffering from mental or emotional, or there's some people who are suffering relationally and some from despair and di discouragement. Whatever it is, our suffering rarely is one size fits all, is it? And yet all of our suffering accomplishes the same purpose, just in the same way that it did in the lives of James and John, when later they truly did become great. We get some insight to this. I think the Apostle Paul prayed of his own suffering. He prayed that it would be used by God to accomplish something specific in him. Right? He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Know this, people, that in God's economy, none of our suffering is ever wasted but all of our suffering 
conforms us to Jesus. It conforms us more and more daily into his image. And it prepares us for heaven for these rewards, which as Jesus says here, only the Father can give. I think Jesus effectively says, look, my Father is preparing these prime positions in the heavenly arena for those who are even now being prepared for those places here on earth. We all want these future positions of reward, but they're dependent upon our current faithfulness to the things that God has given us to do right now, including being faithful even, especially in our suffering. Right? We want the prestige and the prominence and the power, and we want toys and trinkets in this life, but Jesus constantly is trying to lift our eyes up off of the temporal and, and put them on the eternal to take them off the physical and to put our vision onto the spiritual. He's always adjusting, he's always perfecting our perspective, just as he's about to do here with James and John. He is so gently, so graciously redirecting their focus and he's correcting their selfish ambition. Now, understandably, unfortunately, the other disciples in verse 41, we're going to see they had a much less gracious reaction because it says in verse 41 that when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John, right? So the result of this selfish secret power grab was great displeasure on the part of the other disciples, possibly just because they hadn't thought of it first. But when it says, this is cool, when it says that the other disciples were greatly displeased is what it says in the, the New King James. I think in the Old King James it says they were indignant. But the, the actual Greek word more so means extreme anger. And it, it sort of carries the idea of pain and hurt. And it doesn't mean that these sensitive men had their feelings hurt, right, by James and John. What it means is that these men got so angry that it physically hurt to be that angry, right? The 10 were frying over what it was that the two were trying to do. So much so, did you notice the numbering there? Back in verse 32, the disciples are referred to as what? The 12. And so here they go from being the 12 in verse 32, now they are the two and 10 by the time we get to verse 41. All because of the selfish ambition of the two had created this immediate kind of disunity of the 12. This is a scene. And of course, Jesus is well aware of the friction now within the group. So now what does he do? He calls the 10 and two back together as the 12, and he's gonna remind them of some very important spiritual principles that apparently they had forgotten. And he's going to, as he continues, he's going to instruct them again and give them yet again. He's going to lay out the qualifications of who ends up in these two positions, right? On his right hand and on his left in glory. And who ends up in any place of significance in the kingdom of God in this life. Look at verse 42 through 44. Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. He says, you guys are fighting over power and authority, but in the coming kingdom economy, it just doesn't operate like that. So this, this disagreement, right, gave Jesus the opportunity to teach yet, yet another intensely practical lesson on true greatness in his kingdom. Now I can see some of you guys, you're flipping back in your notes and you're thinking, wait a minute, didn't we just hear this same lesson from Jesus just a few weeks back? And the answer is, yes, we did. And I will also tell you, it won't be the last time that we hear it. So this is either bad editing on the part of the Holy Spirit, or right, this is one of his constant messages to his disciples and to us, because he knows that we need to hear it over and over and over again. Now, I will say this. He knows how we need to hear how to be great in the kingdom, but I will offer this up. If you are here this morning and you have this greatness thing all figured out, and if you feel like you have heard it enough from Jesus, then you are free to go. Anybody? Okay. So for the rest of us, notice this. Again, Jesus doesn't rebuke their desire to be great. He doesn't even mind their desire to be first. He's probably happy that they had this desire to excel but they didn't have the first clue on how to excel in his kingdom, in this upside-down kingdom that he is giving birth to. First off, he says they need to stop trying to exercise lordship over one another, right, as the people of the world do, because that was, and it still is, completely foreign to the spirit of the Christian life. According to Jesus, we instead need to become servants and slaves of all. And so, yes, he taught them and he taught us about servanthood before, and he's going to teach us about servanthood again. This Next time it's going to be this upper division course. Remember we said it's going to be on that very night that he's betrayed when they have the Last Supper there in the upper room, and we will see him take those garments of a household servant and take a bowl of water and start to wash the feet of the disciples, right? Start to do that job was the, which was the job of the lowest servant in the household. And then he would say this, he'd say, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And this wasn't Jesus' way of literally telling us that we should have foot washing ceremonies, although there's nothing wrong with that. They can be beautiful. But what he's saying is this is what needs to be done in order to minister to others, especially within the body of Christ. That we need to take that position of servanthood and serve one another. That's the way the upside-down kingdom works. Right? In, in the godless world out there, right, those who are usually considered great are those who are over people and who are being served by other people. Like if you look at the typical org chart of most any corporation or any business, right? Probably the kinds of corporations and businesses that you guys are working at each and every day. But if you look at that org chart, what is it? It's a pyramid. 
And the position of power of a person in that particular corporation or organization, it's directly proportional to how high up they are on that triangle. And of course, the higher they are, the more people they have under them who are serving them, and the more power they then have in this world. That's the way that Jesus said the Gentiles operate, and that's the way that James and John were trying to do. They were trying to secure the, the places at the top of that pyramid. But Jesus says that's how the world economy operates. Right? That's how power is measured by the world in this fallen world. But the kingdom economy, he says, it shouldn't be so. And we need to turn that thing completely upside down. Because Jesus says it's a foundational kingdom reality that the way up is down. True greatness is true servanthood. So Jesus says, look, my coming kingdom, the kingdom of God, it's actually an upside-down triangle. And Jesus says that a person's greatness in the kingdom of God is directly proportional to the number of people that they are under and that they are serving. Right? And so you guys are a super sharp group, right? So you're sitting there, you're saying, okay, here I am this morning, I, I do want to be great, but Jesus just told me I can't be great in the way that most people think about greatness, but I can be great in this economy of the kingdom by being a servant, but what in the world does that look like in my world? Right? What does a, a servant do in this culture, and how do I do that where I am? Well, I'm glad that you asked, because a servant, most simply, is someone who serves others, right? Now, the greatest definition that I have ever heard related to being a servant is this. That a servant is someone who lives to make life better for other people. That's worth writing down, right? If I do say so myself. Well, I didn't make it up, so I can't say it myself. A servant is someone who lives to make life better for other people. And that, for me, is something that I can get my small mind around. But it's just to look at a person or to look at a situation and to ask myself in that context, what can I do here to make life better for that person? What can I do in this situation that will make the situation better for the people involved? And whatever that is, do that. Right? In a marriage, for example, Right? You're married to your husband or you're married to a wife, you know, and there's a, a particular situation or there's a difficulty, whatever it is that's happening in that marriage at that moment, and just to stop and to say to myself, right, for me concerning my wife, what's the single greatest thing I can do right now, right here, to make things better for her? And when I can start to do that thing, then I have become a servant in that situation. But you see, this works everywhere. It works in relationships with larger extended family that we have. It works in our relationships with our fellow employees. It works in relationships with our neighbors. It works in relationships amongst the body of Christ. It works anywhere where we're looking and we can see that this other person is in a rough spot. And I stop and I think to myself, what's the great thing I could do right here, right now, to make things better for them, and then doing that thing? Then what I've just done practically is I have just taken the position of the servant 
in their life. And when we can start to do that, Jesus says, we'll start to be great in the kingdom. But not necessarily in pure power, as we think about greatness, but great in influence. Right? So often we hear the terms power and influence coupled together, but I want us to uncouple those two things in our minds, especially as they relate to the kingdom of God, because power speaks of authority only, while influence speaks of true ministry. Right? It speaks of that place of influence that people will voluntarily choose to give us within their lives, where then we can speak the things of the kingdom into their lives. And that comes, that influence comes as we serve them. And think about it. When a person comes up against a terrible difficulty in their lives and they're looking for help or they're looking for advice or they're just looking for encouragement, they are not necessarily going to turn to their boss simply because that person has authority over them, but they will turn instead to someone who in their experience has loved and served and ministered to them during other difficult times in their life. They will voluntarily seek out that person and then they will voluntarily give to that person influence in their lives. And so very unlike the worldly power structure where that model is a triangle and the person's power is directly proportionate to the number of people they have serving under them, the pyramid of influence in the kingdom of God is upside down, isn't it? A true kingdom influence is directly proportional to the number of people that we are under and we are serving and we are influencing. We still want to be the red, right? We just want to be the red on the bottom instead of being the red on the top. Because what happens is the kingdom of God advances exponentially when we're working under a model like this. Because the lower I go, the more people I'm actively serving, the greater my influence and the true volunteered authority that people are giving me to speak into the hearts of people the things of the kingdom. And when we're able to really start to minister to people and to start serving people in that way, then we've come to the place where we're starting to minister and starting to serve them just like Jesus did. Because look at how he finishes this in verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Put a star by it because that is the theme, the central verse of the gospel according to Mark. Notice those first two words, for even. We're to serve even as or in the same way as or just as Jesus served. Because of course he is the ultimate greatest example of what a servant is. The, this is important because following the example of Jesus, we're always ensured that we're going to serve people in the ways that they need to be served. And so that guards against, we're not talking about creating codependent relationships or entering into some kind of undue servitude to another person out of guilt. We're not talking about taking on their responsibilities. We're not talking about making them comfortable in their complacence because we just saw Jesus certainly didn't do that with the rich young ruler, did he? 
So sometimes this is tricky, but whenever we're in doubt about what we should do, the best thing to do in any given situation, we will always be safe in asking ourselves what? What would Jesus do in this situation? And if we don't know exactly what he would do, we should discover what he would do in the Bible and then do that thing in this situation. And that being said, the very first thing we learn from the Bible, the best place to start, is that Jesus made himself a slave. It's interesting. Did you notice in verse 43, he says that greatness comes from being a servant, and that's the Greek word diakonos. It's where we get our English word deacons. You know, people who serve within the church. But then in verse 44, he says to be like him, and in fact to be the first and to be the greatest servant like him, we need to actually be a slave. Because understand that in Jesus' time, not every servant was a slave, but every slave was a servant. And this defining distinction is that a servant is under contract to work for a certain number of years, but then they could go their own way where a slave didn't have that option available. Okay, this is a few sentences long, but I really think it helps to understand us. One historian wrote this, that while it's true that the duties of slave and servant may overlap to some degree, there's a key distinction between the two. Servants are hired, slaves are owned. Servants have an element of freedom in choosing whom they work for and what they do. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom, autonomy, or rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were considered property to the point that in the eyes of the law, they were regarded as things rather than persons. To be someone's slave was to be his possession, bound to obey his will without hesitation or argument. And what's interesting is that in the Mosaic law, it actually provided a path for a servant to actually become a slave. In Exodus 21, it says that if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. So then they would become not just a servant, but a bond servant, or the word is doulos, in the Greek. Now, why in the world would they do that? Well, it says right there, out of love. To become one who serves willingly out of love, right? A bond servant, a doulos. And that is the word, you guessed it, that's the word that Jesus uses here when he says we need to become the slave of all. We need to become the doulos of all. We need to come to the point where we are willing to willingly make ourselves slaves to everyone around us for the sake of our master Jesus. Removing that option to do anything else, no matter how much it costs us personally. That's heavy, right? But isn't that just what Jesus did? He took away the option not to serve us because he knew there was something greater at stake and that was the redemption of all mankind. 
Right? It says there in verse 28 that to give, pardon me, verse 45, I think, to give his life a ransom for many. And you've all heard this. We've, we've referenced this before in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says that we should have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a, what's it say? Bondservant. Guess what that is? A doulos, a willing slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the creator of the universe in serving us humbled himself all the way down to death, right? Even the worst kind of death, death on the cross. And he did it, it says there, to give his life a ransom for many. Now, do me a favor. I want you to underline those words in the Bible of the person sitting next to you, right? Because here's why. They're important. Because here was the first concrete clue that Jesus had given the disciples yet as to what his death would actually practically accomplish. Now, he had told them on a number of other occasions that he would die, but he hadn't yet told them the reason for his death and yet now it was clear in his own words that his death would provide this ransom or a, some kind of a payment, right, in place of the payment that was required for many. It's a beautiful fulfillment of Isaiah 53 where it says, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. So his death would take the place of many deaths because only his death could truly atone for sin. Right, like John the Baptist said of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or as the Apostle Peter would write later about Jesus, that Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So the, the death of Jesus, right, the giving of his life purchased and provided for the freedom of the people, right? People like us who are in bondage as slaves, but as slaves to sin, right? He paid the price that we could be free so that we could now be slaves to what? To love, right? So we need to serve as slaves to love just like Jesus did. Isn't it slightly ironic that Jesus, a slave by choice to the will of God, paid the price to redeem us, who were ourselves slaves to sin and slaves in sin. That kind of thing could only happen in God's great economy. So you're drifting, and I know that it's almost half past. What does that have to do with us in our being great in the kingdom? Well, it has absolutely everything to do with it, right? Jesus died so that we could live, and when we give of our lives through serving others for their sake, it enables them to live as well. Now we're serving them, 
just the same way that Jesus served us. And it works, you guys. It works even in the midst of the complexities of our current culture. It works even in the modern business climate. It all looks exactly the same. It's just this whole thing of saying, look, I'm choosing to spend my life the way that Jesus spent his life. I'm choosing to be a servant to the people that are involved in every circumstance in my life. Does it work? Yes, it does. But it always comes with a cost, doesn't it? For Jesus, it cost him his life. For us, it probably won't cost us our life, but it will cost us some pride, won't it, in certain situations. It might cost us some money in other situations. It might cost us time in many situations. And it's this kind of life that we can only really appreciate by the Spirit of God because the reward for this kind of life isn't physical, Right? It's not material. Right? It's a reward that actually might seem to be unrewarding. Your reward might be that you're in your own Jerusalem, betrayed and blasphemed and covered with spit and covered with your own blood and hanging there on a cross, pouring out your life to the people around you. That might be your reward. Right? Jesus was the servant who came into the world not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And I'm not saying that a life of this kind of slave-like service is going to translate into you getting your own TV show, right? Or translate into you being famous and anybody caring what you're tweeting about. But the joy and the reward of truly living this kind of life is simply the knowledge that I'm living a life like Jesus lived in this world. And that by his grace and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I know that I'm being an influence for him to this world. Right? And it, there is some particular point in our Christian life. And for some it comes early and for some it comes late. But there's a particular point in our Christian life where we come to really recognize that that is the one valuable thing in life. To be like Jesus. Right? To live like Jesus. To be an influencer for him in this world. And at that point, then we become great in the eyes of heaven. We also become great in the eyes of those around us. And I will close with this this morning as maybe as Kissy comes up and starts to minister. But, you know, it's since the beginning of time itself, people have wanted to be great. And it was the original lie which led to the original sin was what? That God was somehow withholding this godlike greatness from Adam and Eve and that they had to seize it for themselves. You think about the entire human, like the whole Renaissance period and then the beginning of, of secular humanism, that has really made this a way of life in our modern culture. There's this counterfeit concept of greatness and it's just fueled today by books and seminars and workshops and online courses and TikTok videos and culture shapers and influencers all promising us the secret to success. And yet what I believe we've seen in our text today, here we have Jesus telling us exactly how to achieve true greatness in life. 
how to live a life in which during the life we live and then after that life has been lived, where we look at our life and God looks at our life and our fellow men can look at our life as having been a truly great life. That that person was truly a great person. And you think about just how valuable this is. Here are these instructions that Jesus has just given us from the creator of the universe himself. And it's not 400 pages in some kind of airport book. right? It's not in some kind of an online program that we had to subscribe to and go through you know, months of coaching. It is right here, literally, in just a few verses. Here's Jesus giving us instruction on how to live a life ultimately that's going to be esteemed as great in the eyes of heaven. And not surprisingly, in the heavenly kingdom economy, we see that the, the Lord's description of greatness and his prescription for greatness, right, true kingdom greatness, it all boils down to one simple thing, and that's follow Jesus. Follow him in his example as he simply served others. That's what we're called to do, to be great in the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you as we do each and every week, Lord. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for such clear instruction that you give to us, Lord, as you reveal your heart to us. And, Father, we pray that you would implant these things deep within our own hearts. Lord, we pray that you would make room, Lord, that you would break up our hardened hearts, Lord, and allow these seeds to find good soil, Father. We pray that you would make these things a reality in our lives as we yield to the work that your Spirit wants to do in each one of us to simply make us more like your Son, Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and it's in his matchless name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.